listening to Making a Difference About Domestic Violence and Abuse with host Shereen Rice on the CWR Talk Network. Good evening. This is Shereen Rice of Making a Difference About Domestic Violence. My goal for this show is to educate and help in the healing journey for those that are suffering from domestic violence. If you're listening tonight and would like to get in touch with me, I have an email address at Shereen CWR, so that's S H A R E E N E C W R at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I would like to remind everyone that our show is on Thursday nights from 8, well, at 8 o'clock Central Time. That's 7 o'clock Mountain Time, 6 o'clock Pacific Time, and on the second and fourth Thursdays of each month. My show can also be heard on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play if you subscribe to those services. Now, if you want direct links to the programs on these services, you may go to the homepage on the website. Or also, you can just go to cwrtalknetwork.com and click on the logo for that service. But also, um, you can find my personal um, host page on there as well. So you could go there and also find those um, talks that we have here. Okay, if at any time you experience a trigger by this topic, please call the national hotline, and that would be 1-800-799-SAFE or 1-800-799-733. And we're going to return and talk about my guest in just a moment. We're going to have a public service announcement. Did you just look down at your phone? You did it again, didn't you? You know, you're flying down the road in a three-ton hunk of steel. And a text takes your eyes off the road for an average of five seconds. At 55 miles per hour, that's long enough to travel the length of a football field and cause some serious damage. Turn it off. Trust me. Whatever it is. You'll live. Learn more at StopTechStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Welcome back. My guest tonight is Kristen Williams, currently a caseworker for the State of Utah Department of Human Services. Kristen has served as a victim advocate for law enforcement agencies and in a county attorney's office. She has a Bachelor's of Arts degree in Sociology and Ethnic Studies and is working on her Master's degree currently in Social Work from the University of Utah. So let's welcome Kristen to our show. Hello. Hi, Hi. Kristen. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) Glad you got all that. Exciting. Okay, so the first thing I wanted to talk to you about, pretty easy stuff, um, your experience as a DV advocate. Let's talk about that. Okay. Sounds good. Um, so I I was looking. Um, I got involved. Can you get a little bit closer advocacy. to the mic? Sure. Is that better? Yeah, it's better. Okay. Um, I got involved in advocacy kind of accidentally. Um, out of school looking for a full-time position and um, I walked into the victim advocate's office and inquired about a position Um, she said she didn't have a position but she was looking for an intern or a volunteer so I signed up and 
um, she ended up being an amazing mentor and uh, my first experience um, in victim advocacy. And since then, even though I've become a caseworker, um, working with families and in the child welfare system, I still am drawn to advocacy, and um, it's just been a wonderful experience for me. Now, that's wonderful. You know, um, a few weeks ago, I met the advocate down in um, Mesquite, and she said the same thing to me, that she really just wanted to help out, kind of like what you said, just kind of walking in, wanting to help because she's had experience with it and stuff. So anyway, I thought that was unique that you both. That was your interest was to volunteer. That was great. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, you're, you're good. Um, It is interesting that you would think it would be the opposite. (laughs) That (laughs) Oh my gosh, you're walking into these situations um, and you can't wait to get out. But really it's been one of my most positive experiences working. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. And did you have experience with domestic violence or how you just heard about it or studied about it? What was your um, uh, motivating factor for one, walking in? I, no, I was, I had studied, um, you know, sociology and the law. And so I was looking for any kind of law involvement experience Um so I really didn't have a lot of domestic violence experience when I walked in. Um, it was all kind of new. So, yeah, I was originally looking for experience with the law in some sort of way. Socio- sociological manner, you mean? Yeah. 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 Um, wanting to work with the underserved or underprivileged population in some way yeah um and so when i found the victim advocate i didn't know there was a position and i think a lot of domestic a lot of um domestic violence victims also don't know about such a position and that there is advocacy out there yeah that's true. And why don't you share some of your experiences as a victim advocate? Now, one, you said that you worked with law enforcement and would go out on calls. But what was, is there another one that you worked as a victim advocate? Yeah, the other position was for um, the county attorney's office. And so they would prosecute any kind of violent crime. Um, and so we would work with the victims of any sort of violent crime from domestic violence to robbery, homicide. Um, Yeah. So it was more of a prosecution victim advocate. Um, In both situations, we would work with the victim on like victim statements, um, helping them through the legal process, attending court with them. We would physically stand between them and the perpetrator in court so that they, you know, weren't victimized again. Um, right. Because can, they can be victimized by just a look from the perpetrator. So, right. Um, and to get them 
to court was huge. <laughs> so, you know, in a lot of ways that was, by the time they're involved in the court, they have been involved in the domestic violence cycle for years and years. Yeah. So just to be able to be there with them was monumental, and it it's, it just goes beyond words how brave they are. Awesome. And so did you help them get to court? I mean, did you encourage them when they got discouraged and so forth? Yeah. Yeah, that was a huge part. We were available to them at any time. They could call or come in to the office um, just for that moral support. There was also physical support and reparations. So um, if they needed medical bills paid or um, locks changed on their house, we could do that as well for them. Oh, awesome. Okay, so you changed yeah. locks and and so forth. Transport, yeah. We were available, especially with the law enforcement agency, to transport them to, say, court. like um, a shelter, yep, or court. Okay. Yeah. And in the area that you were at, did the shelters have a problem being full? I know I I hear that's a problem at times. Yeah, but it it is a problem at times, but I did never run into that. So it seems like they're very accommodating in that situation. Oh, awesome. And yeah, and there are um there are private people um, or people in the private sector that also volunteer their homes or spaces for victims of domestic violence in in that situation in case the shelters are full. So the victim the victim advocate has knowledge of those where you know the public of course don't and right. Well, they ha- they have resources that they can use. If and at, I also hear at times that hotels and stuff will accommodate and so forth when they're full and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So there are resources, and my the first lady that I worked with, um, she would take people into her home. She was just an angel. So. Um, I can't say enough about her. <laughs> awesome. Well, it's good to have yeah. a really good experience too, you know. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, and you indicated that you would go out with law enforcement a few times, not uh, a lot, but that was uh, one of your responsibilities. Can you share some of your experiences with that? Yeah. Um, so, I remember one particular evening, it was two or three in the morning, um, and we responded to the hospital. Um, I responded to the hospital. I believe she responded to the scene um, and then um, asked me to respond to the hospital with the victim. So this was a a situation where this victim had been victimized numerous times Mm. and we learn yeah we learn um in training which was is a shock was a shock to me when I learned it that as advocates 
we are there to try to avoid um, death. Um, so this was the first time that I kind of saw that um, reality. So she had been victimized several times, and she was pretty beat up. Um, and I just remember going into the emergency room, and it was her and I and an officer. And it was just so – it seemed so cold and – um, quiet and I just felt for her and I if I wouldn't have been there it would have been her and the officer and he was he had dealt with um, the perpetrator and her in situations before and so he was telling her um, you know that it was only going to get worse and that she could end up dying um, and so I was thankful to be there to kind of be, soften it. um, yeah, to soften it, to just be there if she wanted to talk about it. If she didn't, that was okay. But, um, oftentimes the, the victims are isolated, become isolated by the perpetrator. And so she may or may not have had someone to call and come pick her up or to provide that support. So I was there for that support and to take her, I ended up taking her to a hotel. But um, that was the first time that I kind of saw the seriousness of reason why we are trained to do what we do. Yeah. Um, And so I think, you know, I think she did end up going back home, but we also learned that it takes about eight times for a victim to try and, get out of a, an abusive relationship before they can successfully separate themselves from that. So, yeah. Um, that, you know why that yeah. is? No. A lot of it's threats. <laughs> they like, love to make threats and they love to make promises. Oh, I'll never do it again. Mm. It was a one-time mm. thing. You do that, I'll take the kids. You do that, you'll never live past tomorrow. Um, all sorts of things. In mm. fact, I'm sure you know this that is 70% of all DV deaths are when they're leaving or after they've left. Mm. You probably know that. Mm. that. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah, that refreshes my memory um, to learning that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm yeah. going to tell you, it's my hats off to you for volunteering your time for that. I, I am familiar with a lot of um, advocates that go out with, um, that go out with law enforcement. LA has a huge program that's very impressive, and they found that um, data is better when advocates go out with them. It's been found um, in other studies as well that more convictions and they arrest the right person for sure because when they confer with DV advocates, it's uh, it's really awesome when law enforcement confers with DV advocates when they go to arrest someone. But also one thing about a victim, physical victims are usually female, 96% of the time are female, as you know. But mm-hmm. um, when a male at, um, law enforcement goes out there, she's already <clears> – <throat> afraid person, Mm -hmm. you know, who is a male. And that's why another good reason why an advocate, um, plus their experience with advocacy, uh, they have more compassion. It's just a far better 
far better scenario for the victim. Right. Yeah, and I can see that, um, especially with, like you said, the the cycle of abuse where the perpetrator abuses and then makes promises and the victim goes back. Um, the advocate gives the victim someone to um, confide in to re- kind of remember why they had left in the first place and yeah yeah Yeah. I um like I said I was talking to the one in um Mesquite she had just started and there was this girl that was uh I was I went to the courthouse because I was there for another friend for something anyway so um this lady's husband or boyfriend I'm not sure which was being accused of domestic violence and he was actually surprisingly this never happens he was very repentant um saying it was mm-hmm. his fault he was sorry you know and um mm-hmm. unless he's got the got it down what he should say i really thought he was uh sincere and mm-hmm. they it's usually they don't say anything because they think that that dumb broad made me do it and uh it's her fault that I'm here you know usually that's what's going on mm-hmm. in their head anyway so they usually don't say anything but I was pretty impressed so anyway I gave this girl my card and I said give me a call anytime I'm a DV advocate and then the DV advocate whom I did not realize I was sitting right next to she goes hey can I talk to you afterwards and I said absolutely so we I was talking to her and she said okay I just started this job and I need all the information you can give me (laughs) (laughs) it was great and so we sat and talked for a couple hours (laughs) and uh, yeah it was awesome (laughs) but um great yeah yeah because you know we all need to support each other in everything that we do especially when it's advocating yeah. for a dear sister of abuse and uh, yeah. one that's considered still a victim um, and not a survivor. Survivor is after you've left and a, a victim's while you're still in it. And, uh, and it does take a while. Uh, yep. It takes uh, seven to eight, nine times for them to realize, you know what? I don't want this for my life and I'm going to die trying to get out of it. <laughs> and that's what yeah. they do some- some do die, and and you're probably really familiar with that. In fact, in Utah, the the homicide rate is forty uh, percent DV now. The of all the wow. homi- all the deaths in Utah, forty percent of them are domestic violence. So I'd really like to see some changes. I think we could be set really successful at making this a a better um, a better state in that concern. Uh, less deaths and more people going to jail. Um, I was really in shock. I went to Ivan's one day and this young man was there with his family and he had been, um, he was out with his girlfriend or something. It was simple assault, something he had hit her or something. And I was the wrong person to be sitting in that audience. I almost came unglued. I think I had to walk out. They just barely tapped him on the wrist and, uh, and I was in shock. I was wow. just in shock. Um, you know, it, it's that tap on the wrist that those guys get that um, con- it's worth it to them to continue. And that's why mm-hmm. domestic violence continues. It's worth it because they're not going to get in trouble. 
In fact, Mm -hmm. um, at times, law enforcement, and uh, I've told you about this before, uh, choose the wrong person. I'm working with two people right now that are victims that was arrested and not the perpetrator. And in one of the cases, Mm -hmm. a woman got hit so hard. No, actually, she wasn't hit. He can actually say he didn't hit her. He slammed her head into the door jam and broke two of her newly... um, newly put in teeth they're putting on a post and he rearranged Mm. that very nicely and Mm. he scratched himself up and then called the cops and cops came over and said well he's all scratched up and that's your fault and she's like I didn't touch him and they're like well there's the scratches you did it so they haul her in and she doesn't have money for a lawyer and Uh so she has to plea in abeyance and so it's really nice I mean I'm going to tell you right now nothing upsets me more than when victims are taking domestic violence classes and not the perpetrator that that really puts me over the edge that's disgusting yeah and and like you said um, a victim victim advocate is can help that process because they're trained in how a victim is victimized before the police get there <laughs> right. and um, and what to look for. And in that instance, the, the, uh, the perpetrator was trained, you know, he was trained in what to say and what to do. And even. Oh, very well. To, he was trained since birth. Yeah. They're trained exactly. since birth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. in school since that- birth on how to get through all this. Yeah, I have a, another girl that I'm really close with, and she has to go to California all the time trying to get custody of her kid. And thank goodness uh, the judge saw through it after he put this child in danger and gave the father custody of him, who was mm-hmm. not convicted but accused of um, pedophilia from his last children, um, mm-hmm. which the she thought she saw similar signs and um, so he didn't want that to happen again. So he used everything that was used against him in the first one against her, you know, as a good abuser will, mm-hmm. they learn really well from their past. Yeah. And, um, but it didn't hold up in court for very long. But in the meantime, that child was um, under his jurisdiction for two or three months. And it was really sad because, that gives a perpetrator more time to poison their children. And that's that's what mm-hmm. happened to the the abusers in the first place was they're poisoned mm-hmm. or trained as you might say trained by their perpetrators. Mm-hmm. Their own perpetrators. Yeah. Anyway, I don't mean to go on and on and on. So do you have any other stories on um uh advocacy or information on advocacy that you'd like to share? And then we'll go into that um, other area. Sorry, what was your last comment? I said then we'll go on to the other area of what you're currently doing now and so forth. Um, I yeah, I um, and this kind of ties into um, another area that I'm working in, but. Or have worked in, but I think I'll share it. Um, we're going to talk about this again in an, in another segment, but I'll just okay. share it briefly. 
So I, um, prior to this work, I was a cosmetologist, um, and and so I I had this family that would come in, and the, the there was a couple and two small girls, and the the woman the mother of the two small girls was very quiet and demure and and quite a bit younger than her husband. And her husband was a large, boisterous man and obviously in charge and loved it and would bring these small little girls in um, to have their hair done, but not the mother. And... And he was um, very domineering. So one day, uh, the little girls had gotten their hair done. They would get it shampooed and styled. And they were, gosh, probably three and five maybe, so really little. And um, the dad called back after getting their hair done and um was very, very angry that we had charged them what they usually pay to get the little girl's hair done. And so I explained that, you know, we had charged that price all the time and he just was belligerent and um, told me, that he was coming for me. Uh oh. <laughs> so, yeah, you can always yeah. call an abuser, can't you? <laughs> yeah. Um and but so that was after me, you know, holding my position and and not backing down. So then he got more animated on the phone and more belligerent and finally said that he was coming for me. So um did you say describe what that yeah. looks like? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I called the police, you know, just in case. And he actually did come down looking for me to the salon um, and continued to be belligerent even with the police there. So I that clued me in that something was going on. Um, but... Pretty soon after that, uh, the the victim advocate's office got a call um, to work with this mom, um, and it ended up, long story short, um, a huge FBI sting, and he was involved in child pornography oh my and gosh. domestic violence, and we helped his wife with a protective order. Um, so yeah, telltale signs, which ended up to be very true and accurate. And I got kind of both sides of that case. You did. And you know, that's, um, somewhat unusual because one thing about abusers are they are so nice and so kind mm. and so caring towards everybody else that they think Mm. everyone thinks, Oh my gosh, you're so blessed to have that man in your life. I, I can't tell you how many people have said that to friends of mine and me. I mean, you know, it was, yeah. they're, they're always so sweet outwardly and everyone mm-hmm. just, but you know, there's those, 
those extreme narcissist sociopathic types <laughs> that mm-hmm. they're going to hunt you down if you don't do exactly what they yeah. tell you. Yes. Well, and, and I had so, got him, I had got him, uh, I probably triggered him because I wouldn't back down. Good, and yeah. um, prior to that incident, we were all like, what a fun, friendly guy. And he brings his little yeah. girls in to get their hair blow dry. And Are how you kidding? sweet and wonderful of a daddy he yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> that that was another interesting experience that I had as an advocate to kind of see both sides. Yeah. And so I'm I'm thinking since the FBI were involved, the pornography was probably online. Yeah. And was there more yep. than just pornography? He had to have been, was it child pornography? It was child pornography. Okay, yeah. I was going to say, if it was regular pornography and he was a, an adult and it was adult pornography, I couldn't see why the FBI would be involved. Well, praise yeah. the Lord that you called the cops because that just helped them a, a whole lot more. Because yeah. uh, hopefully those children didn't endure too much of his addiction. So you said pornography, right. and what else did you say uh, he was in besides domestic violence, or did you? Um, no, that that's all that I knew of, um, is the child pornography and domestic violence. And luckily, I moved shortly after that, <laughs> because he knew yeah. where I worked. And <laughs> well, hopefully they so. took him in and left him and threw away the key. Hopefully that was the case. I know, I, know, I hope. And did you not follow that one at all? Um, when I moved, it was it, the process was just starting, so I don't know if it has been resolved yet. And um, yeah, no, I haven't followed it to see where it's gone. Okay, and let me ask you this question, because now you were a victim, right, because he's making threats towards you. Um, Did you have a restraining order put on him, Um, no contact order, anything? No, I didn't. That's interesting that you say that. I I didn't um, seek anything like that. I assisted his wife in that, and that's... um, a good point that he, you know, he was upset that she had sought a a protective order. But no, I didn't seek any sort of protective order myself or protection well, myself. Well, what surprised me is they didn't recommend it to you. Right, that is true. Where was the victim advocate? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it it wouldn't even have to be a victim advocate. Why didn't law enforcement find a victim advocate for you um, because you were perpetrated on? (laughs) I think they have some responsibility here, too, when you called them because he was making threats. Right. Yeah, and until you said that, I had not seen myself as a victim. So that's interesting. And you know what? I'm going to tell you right now, we have so many victims out there that don't even realize they're a victim. I would have said the same thing to you. The whole, uh, during my entire marriage until he hit me, he was only psychologically, verbally, emotionally, and mentally abusive. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. so I thought, 
Well, why does he do that? Um, normal people don't do that, but why does he do that? That's just, you know, why does he say that? What's his, you know, yeah. I just couldn't figure it out. And, you know, there's a book called that. Why does he do that? Which I guess I wish I would have <laughs> read that book. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. you know, so, so many women get perpetrated on just like yourself. It was just a psychological abuse, right? And so he didn't mm-hmm. hurt you, right? So therefore it's not abuse. And they mm-hmm. don't really realize that that's how these abusers um, lull you into a false security until mm-hmm. they can, and then mm-hmm. they escalate. And uh, mm-hmm. you didn't get involved in that because you moved soon thereafter. Is that is that what you're telling me? Yes. Yep, I did. Well, that was a fun one, girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so how yeah. about um so you were working as a cosmetologist while you were volunteering your time or internshipping over at the um a, as an advocate is what you're saying? Yes. So you kind of understood the process a little bit. Yes. yes. And did you know any law enforcement? Um you felt comfortable calling them, right? Did you know any law enforcement and say, "Hey, you know, I mean, you had probably gone out a few times and helped out law enforcement, so you probably felt real comfortable with them. Um, I didn't have a lot of interaction with law enforcement. Um, that the the full time victim advocate did, and she was comfortable with okay. them. Yeah. Um, but myself, I didn't get to know them really well. Um, in the County Attorney's Office. We would we were in the same office as the Sheriff's Office, so um, I had great experiences with the with the Sheriff's Office there. Um, I haven't had a negative experience with law enforcement, but I'm sure they're out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure they are too. Okay, um, do you have another experience uh, before we move on to uh, what you're doing now? Because these experiences are getting better and better by the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh, thank you. (laughs) Um, I told you you'd be hot on the radio, didn't I tell you that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, but... I'm glad you said that now. <laughs> well, let me keep going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I guess one more <clears throat> experience, which is another a kind of a different experience um, than the first two, were being called out in the middle of the day to um, where the couple was were there, they were fighting over the kids and visitation, but the mother was clearly high um, on heroin. She was skin and bones. Um, Yeah, and so both of us were there, the advocate and myself, and that was a whole other experience of trying to rationalize with someone who is um, high and irrational and keeping the kids safe and the father away. 
Um, so that was a juggling act, but a learning experience and ended up going to the hospital with that mother and sitting with her um, because she was on suicide watch Mm. and she was told by the police not to contact her husband, but she did anyway. And he was like her lifeline. Um, And so there was no way they make him feel that way though. Yeah. Yes. So it's really not and, the victim's fault. Um, they're basically programmed in their brain to believe that only this person can take care of you. You can't live without them. Don't try, you know, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. W- one quick thing. Um, it was an example of mine where I don't know if I've ever told this to anyone. Um I was so messed up in the head. Yeah, it is just me and you. My head was so messed up that literally I accidentally paid all my bills a second time, not realizing I had paid him the first time because I didn't, I didn't, because what he would do, you know what financial abuse is, right? Yes. So one way that the perpetrator can control you. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The financial abuse, yeah. and that's either controlling the finances in one way or another, or um, preventing you from having any finances. That's another way to control you. But what he would do is he'd put all my credit cards and my um, and my checkbooks in a shoebox and put it in his room in his office, which was uh, plastered with shoeboxes. So who knew which one that was? And so he would pull it out once a month. And then tell me what bills to pay, which were mine and his. And um, mm-hmm. after my bills were only about $1,000 and my check was several thousand over that. And then after I got through paying for his bills too, um, and then I'm now out of money, right? He, he would then shame me that I, uh, that I couldn't save a dime. That was my favorite mm-hmm. when I realized what was mm-hmm. happening. But the fact that my head was so messed up. Um, because he would pull out the, the check, you know, the shoe box, tell me what to write. And, and we mechanically went through this month after month after month. And so when I had mm. to do it on my own, though, I'd been taking care of myself for years. I, I didn't realize, um, that it had that much influence on me. And I'm like, and I paid all my bills a second time. <laughs> oh, my word. And so they're oh like, why word. are you paying this again? And I'm like, I don't know. I thought I didn't pay it yet. You know, it was just my head was so messed yeah. up. It was it was sad. And I didn't realize yeah. how much control they can put over a person. And I'm not uneducated. I had a master's at the time. You know, it's not like I didn't take uh-huh. care of my family or, or myself for eons of years. But uh, – I, I'm just in shock at how much brainwashing goes on in a right. uh, TV situation. And so when someone goes, why does she do that? Why does she go back? I'm like, you do not know the amount of brainwashing that goes on. It's right it's out of this world. It's outlandish. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and again, the isolation, they're good at isolating you so that you don't right. have the outside supports to tell you that that's you know that's a little extreme or you know to reassure you so yeah right 
and that's what had happened to me. In fact, he could have easily killed me, and I know exactly where he, you know, these thoughts of what's what he, was going on in his head starts going on in yours. I knew exactly what his plans were. He wanted to kill me. I knew where he was going to put his my body, and I knew exactly what he was going to do with my car. And mm. I just absolutely knew that. And it didn't happen, but so... Mm, it, thank it was, I was, yeah, I was very blessed, but it, you know, I, I guess I'm a hard person to kill, but <laughs> he tried every which way, but Liz to do that, but that didn't work because I fight back pretty hard, but he did isolate me. I had no friends. I had no one. I yeah. didn't know anyone where I was at. I was out in the middle of nowhere. And because mm-hmm. I'm so busy, he'd make sure I was so busy all the time. And my mm-hmm. life is always busy anyway, that I didn't talk to my friends for several months on end. And they wouldn't mm-hmm. even miss me, really, for um, yeah. at least another month because, you know, I don't talk to them frequently because I'm busy all the time and yeah. trying to establish that relationship and strengthen something that can't be strengthened or established because of, you know, abusers. You just can't establish any type of relationship with them because it's, they're incapable, of course. Right, yeah. But that being oh, said, gosh. I do want to talk about what you're doing now, but we're going to go to a public service announcement. Is that okay? Oh, yeah. That's okay, good. we'll be right back. Okay. It's Thursday night, and you're grabbing drinks with some friends. Started off with a pitcher for the table, which quickly becomes two. There's pool. Oh. And there's the photo booth. All right, everybody, squeeze in. Say cheese. Followed naturally by an order of wings. And another. Can we get some extra ranch sauce? Then there's the ceremonial nightcap. So what are we doing this weekend? And lastly, it's back to the car, which, if you're buzzed... ...could be the most expensive night of your life. Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Making a Difference About Domestic Violence and Abuse with your host, Shereen Rice, on the CWR Talk Network. Hey, Kristen. Hello. <laughs> you there, good. Uh, you didn't leave me. <laughs> I know, I'm I know here, yes. Older, I'm here, there. I'm so relieved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't that a relief? Okay, so I wanted you to share what you do now, and um, and tell us all about that. Okay, so now I work um, with children and families who, um, where the children have experienced abuse or neglect, and specifically, I worked with. I work with the families where the children are able to stay in the home and not go into foster care. So I work with the families on the things that brought them to our attention, such as domestic violence um, yeah. or drug abuse or mental health issues, um, things like that. So we work on treatment and 
keeping the family together. Oh, awesome. So what do you do exactly? How do you keep them together? So if the abuse is with the, let's just say um, the abuse is with the father, um, what, mm-hmm. what do you do to keep them together? Well, we would, we would start with assessments um, and then follow the recommendations of those assessments. So if uh, the father is a perpetrator of domestic abuse, we would have him assessed and then follow the recommended treatment. Um, some of the problems that you can guess based on our previous conversation is that um, a lot of times these people are good at minimizing their actions um, but fortunately or unfortunately they've caused enough damage that a state agency is involved so we're able to provide collateral information and hopefully get them the treatment that they need Uh, for the uh, abuser and the abused. Now, yeah, the children that have been brought to your attention, is the mother sometimes abused or just the children? Well, let me put it this way. If there is a couple involved in domestic violence, we wouldn't be involved. It's when the children um, are involved that we intervene okay so yeah so the children have to be um of concern that that we intervene at least our agency but you know a victim advocate can still assist with a couple yeah but but we're concerned with when the children become involved and is that brought to your attention by a neighbor or by a mother or by whom? It could be anyone. Um, Utah has a child abuse and neglect reporting line. So anyone can call that line anonymously. It could be a parent. It could be a teacher, a neighbor, um, a friend. It could be anyone to report abuse or neglect of a child. Wow, that's good. And you're considered a case manager, right? I'm a caseworker. Mm -hmm. And have you had a lot of success stories or some not so successful? Yeah, we, our goal is to provide permanency for the children. And so we don't close a case until that permanency is achieved, whether it's be hopefully to remain at home um, for the family to get the assistance that they need to be able to function in a healthy way. If that's not possible, then um, we do end up placing the children in substitute care or foster care, um, and then that becomes the child's new permanent placement or situation. So we try to keep the children in the home with their um, birth families, but if that can't happen safely, then they will be placed in another placement where permanency can be achieved 
in um, a substitute situation. And uh, let me ask you this. Um, is that when both parents are uh, not fit or why would, why would you take the children away from the mother is what I'm asking, I guess. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, that's if both parents are unfit. So if there is one fit parent, it could be either um, or protective. I'll say protective. If there is one protective parent, the, the children will remain with that parent. And... And I'm going to share an ex, ex, an example with you. It, it was out of Oregon. It was someone I know real well. And um, tell me uh, why this would happen or that maybe it wouldn't even happen here in Utah. I don't know. Um, the okay. father, who was actually an abuser but didn't have any proof of that, um, made false accusations. Boy, that's a shock, isn't it? Towards the mother yeah. because he wanted the child. So in goes the state, takes the child out of her home into his home. So, yay, now the perpetrator has another child he can perpetrate on and Mm -hmm. makes such allegations that she has to get a lawyer. She spends probably $40,000, $50,000 on a lawyer, which her family helped her with. They go to court. The state can find no evidence that she was per, she was anything that he said she was, which was sexually inappropriate, just so you know. And mm-hmm. um, But they left the child with the, the perpetrator, mm. the father, the father, who was mm-hmm. um, who, who was an abusive man, an abusive husband. That's why they weren't still together. And... Mm-hmm. Um, but she had no proof because, number one, a victim will always protect their abuser. Mm-hmm. But what would Utah do? This was in Oregon, and I have to tell you, I don't have any confidence in how Oregon handles these type of things. Anyway, I've heard too many horror stories. So um, mm-hmm. can you share with me if you guys would do the same thing, if you had nothing against him, or if you would return the child back to the mother knowing that the uh, um child pretty much you know is close to moms and stuff like that now this child I will tell you she's five yeah that is a hard situation and oh I can see where that would be so frustrating Um, so one of the components to placing a child or leaving them where they're at is the attachments that they have they have made, um, and so Utah is trying to, like I was saying, um, leave the children in the home with their birth families as much as possible because studies have just shown that in, that removing those children from their home is very traumatic on yeah. the child. Um, and so as many efforts as as we can make to rehabilitate the parents or to create a safe environment is beneficial for the child. So in that situation, I can see where um, they would not want to remove the child from the place that she was attached to. And not knowing the case, I don't know what efforts were made by the mother to bring the father's abuse to light I would hope that that would happen so that 
the child wouldn't be left to be victimized by the father. Um, I would hope that that would be brought to light so she wouldn't remain in, in his care, but I don't know what measures were taken to bring that to light. Of course, we wouldn't want to leave a child in um, a place where the child is being abused. Um, and at the same time, we don't want to interrupt the child's security and attachments. Right. I can see that. Um, um, now, I think, I just have to tell you, I think Utah does a far superior job a far superior job than Oregon ever considered doing. Um, this mm. case uh, was in Jackson County. But that being said, I have literally heard law enforcement in Douglas County, Oregon, say, uh, no, you were the one that was arrested. We're not going to take any report from you. That was quote, unquote. And, um, mm. and that was from a victim that was mistreated by law enforcement and arrested. After, again, she was beat up. But, of course, the only one with the phone when the female is beat up and she dares not call the cops is the only one who calls the cops is the guy or the perpetrator. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah. um, that being said, I do think that uh, Utah does a far superior job with families and children uh, than than other states. But, uh yeah, as far as I, I don't think she brought that to light. I'm, I don't know. I, w- I didn't yeah. go to court with her. I do go to court with a lot of women. Um, and I was considering going up to Oregon to be a support for her as well. But I did have probably a good 10, 15 friends that uh, went up with her. Though they're not advocates, um, they they were a support system for her for sure. But what was oh, shocking... Yeah, what was shocking to all the women was uh, why would they leave this child in the presence of a man who false made false claims anyway, right? Yeah. So that was right. a weird thing. I couldn't understand that either for the life of me. But <clears throat> yeah. So you're saying the, it, where the attachments are is where they would leave the child or take the child or whatever? Unless, unless there's abuse or neglect. And so right, right. that's why it's important that um, that she give is given a fair chance to have that, you know, abuse or neglect investigated. Mm-hmm. And well, and I will tell you this: I do remember her calling law enforcement several times on both of those type charges, and they finally just said, "You know what? Stop calling." Yeah. And that's the other frustrating thing is that um, it gets, uh, unfortunately, law enforcement and caseworkers hear a lot of custody disputes. And so it's, and they're unfortunately used um, for that purpose. And so it comes down to evidence a lot of times. And so that could work against someone, you know, who's being truthful. If there's not evidence to support the allegation, there's not much that can be done. I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. I can see that. Which is sad. I wish everyone was honest. 
Yes, and it's very difficult for law enforcement and judges to identify who's being honest, especially when abusers, as you know, are the best liars, manipulators, and dupers in the world. They they can dupe just about anyone. I've seen them dupe law enforcement. I can't tell you on how many occasions. So um, yeah. they're really, really – but not just that. I, I had a friend who was very religious. Her husband is very religious, and he would really, really – uh, was psychologically abusive in the home. And when she'd go to church, her friends, or not her friends, but the people there would go, all the women, she would say, oh, you're just so blessed to have such a wonderful husband. Oh, my gosh. He's so, <laughs> such a good man. And she would go, please take him. <laughs> I don't know. Seriously. She said, oh. I wanted them to just walk off with him. <laughs> you know, yeah. They have no idea. And one time right. she wanted me to hear how he mistreated her at home. And so um, I get this call from her and she's not on the other end, but all this yelling and verbal abuse and demeaning and everything. I knew exactly, you know, I knew it was her anyway, because she came up, her name came up on my phone, but I knew exactly what she was doing. And mm. I heard everything mm. that he was doing to her and it was horrible, horrible, horrible. Oh my gosh. I'm glad she was able to call you. And I wish that judges and law enforcement receive the same type of training that victim advocates do so that they know and they're educated about the, the ways that perpetrators control and contrive and manipulate situations. So again, that comes back to, um, the victim advocate role and if someone can reach out to a victim advocate like you said it would just increase um the uh i can't think of the right word um conviction of the perpetrator well and it's really not their fault because i think what makes you a great advocate a person a really 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 good advocate is when you've had it done to you you know experience is always Mm -hmm. the best teacher and so Mm -hmm. you know those law enforcement and judges that have not had that happen to them of course that is one area of of education that that they would of course lack in and it's probably probably the best teacher but um yeah, I got to share this one with you. It was, it was hilarious. I put a restraining order on my ex-husband. And, um, <clears throat> well, he was my husband at the time. But anyway, I put a restraining order on him. And he fought it. And so I went mm. to court. And, I mean, <laughs> I sat there going, oh, my gosh, that poor guy. And then in my head, I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know he's lying to you. And you're getting convinced by him sitting here on the stand. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, if I'm getting convinced and I know he's lying, what's the judge going to say? So anyway, she goes, how do you feel? I said, I feel my life is in peril. And she said, but he just wants his guns. And I felt like saying, you blockhead, you know why he wants his guns? I'll tell you why he wants his guns. <laughs> you know? oh, anyway, it was, yeah. was kind of hilarious. But um, oh, so. Word. So anyway, she gave him back his, she took the restraining order off because he just wanted to go haunting. Anyway, so after mm. that, then let's see, I got my tires slashed. I got mm. um, my oil drained out of my car, and he tried mm. to kill me on the freeway once again. Do you know what swanning is? 
No. That's where they pull in front of you and slam on their brakes. So he pulls in front of me on this hill, slams on his brakes, and there's a logging truck right behind me. (gasps) What they expect you to do is to swerve and... um, and this actually happened to my daughter, and she totaled out the car she was in. But since it had happened to my daughter, I kind of knew what to do. I kept my everything on my rear view, all my eyes on my rear view mirror, and slowed down mm-hmm. to the best of my ability without getting hit. Um, <clears throat> and swer- I didn't swerve, but I sort of went towards the uh, the side of the road, which there was. Uh, virtually no place to park I couldn't have stopped there by any stretch but so I mean Mm. so that's what she did for me wasn't that kind of her um she took the restraining order off so he could uh antagonize me so much more and and try to kill me even once again so that was my word that is frightening yeah very but anyway girlfriend it's been so great to talk to you I so appreciate your comments and I'm so thank you I know you're a little nervous on coming on but you did like tremendous did you I do you feel nervous now or just do you feel like great like yeah this is easy (laughs) oh thank you I appreciate that you're welcome. It helps that we're just on the phone. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I told you, remember, I said, hey, we'll just be talking on the phone like best buds right. and uh, no big deal, right? Yep. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on and you have a good night. And we will oh, be speaking to you. you again in December about okay. that program that you told me about that you're working on. Now, is that through the before we, you know, give a, a 411 on it, I don't want to tell too much, but is that through the state or is that a private company that you have? No, that is through the Professional Beauty Association. Oh, awesome. Actually, yeah. Okay. They have created this program for cosmetologists. And you help them with that? I do. I educate in local um, salons or cosmetology awesome. schools. Um um, yeah, any kind of one-on-one client professional relationship experiences, um, it, it's called the taxi cab phenomenon. Yeah. Um, well, let's not go too much into it because I want to talk about it in yeah. December when I have you back. But, uh, okay. yeah, amazing. I love that program. In fact, I would like to see more programs out there for different uh, service-oriented um, groups, maybe teachers as well. But, uh, anyway, we will talk more yeah. about that in December. <clears throat> okay. And um, I great. think it was – let me look. I think you're December 13th. Is that what I said? Yeah, December 13th, yeah. I will be seeing you again. All right, sweetie. Okay. Thank you so much, and I appreciate your help. Well, thank you. And you have a good night, okay? You too. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, bye-bye. Before I close or close down, what I would like to do is I would like to um, – well, I wanted to address the Kavanaugh situation. I am going to do a maybe a – a separate one because it's going to take a lot longer than I have left on the radio, but I think it does need to be addressed um, on how women are treated or how women are believed or not believed and what the ratios are and what, uh, what to look for in a victim and in a, in a perpetrator. So I won't be talking about it now because it's going to take me at least probably at least an hour, but I do want to address it. 
I wish I was on the radio last week. Um, I'm every other week, so that's good. Uh, but I'm going to uh, work on something, and we, and we can talk about it together. All right? So this is Shireen signing off, and I love you, and stay close to those that are healthy. Have a good night. <laughs>